3 through 6th grade, all kids ages 3 through 6th grade, you are dismissed to go with Miss Allie in the back. For those of you who are staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Also, as they're leaving, I would remind you, we do have the new app. If you're not familiar with that, there are some sheets out there where you can have the QR code in the app. Not only do you have the access to be able to take a look at what are some of the upcoming events at the church, you can also save them to your calendar. You can uh, share those uh, events with friends. Uh, you also have access through the Sunday, uh, Sunday at Grace. There are sermon notes that you have available on there. Um, and so feel free to take a look at those as you may so desire. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness this morning. We thank you for the wonder of your grace which meets us where we're at. Father, we ask for the mercy and grace of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we might see you, that we might know you, that we might know your goodness and your salvation. Uh, lead us into the path of life and into truth and ultimately enable us to reveal your glory um, that the world might see you through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you know, one of the things that I often try to make sure people understand and know and feel that you see how much I understand I am a person of grace, that I have received grace and a person of grace. So when I talk about the wonderful, remarkable grace that I have uh, as being one who graduated in my undergraduate from Oklahoma State University, I'm not trying to shame you poor people who did not get to go to Oklahoma State University. I understand that this is a work of grace in my life, and I don't ever want to try to set up anything that makes you all feel insecure about that. Now, except for when Joseph wears his OU paraphernalia at work, sometimes I, how to, out of love, try to rebuke his insolence, right? So, but I understand that this is a work of grace. Now, in my previous ministry, there, um, and, and I know this is going to be hard for you guys to hear because many of you are TCU alumni and grad and everything like that, but there was a, a previous ministry, there was a, a family who was there, and this, the, the man's dad was actually on the board of regents for Baylor University, and so he was a uh, diehard Baylor uh, and actually had, for the football games, had one of those, it wasn't an owner's box because it was a college, but it was kind of a, the big wig box. This is a guy who was closer to a billionaire than he was a millionaire, and um, all these various things. Now, so what happened is one time, even though I am of God's people from Oklahoma State University, this person uh, very generously and wonderfully grabbed a group of about four guys and said, hey, my dad has this, this box, we'll call it an owner's box for the sake of ease. He has this owner's box where I, I, I'm able to invite you guys to come and to watch, this was about seven years, the Baylor TCU game. And so this was a big deal. Uh, one of the guys had graduated from Baylor, and so he came in full, you know, Baylor paraphernalia. He had pants that had Baylor all over the pants, which I didn't know was a thing, but it's a thing. Uh, and he was rather proud. And so when we get up there, and so we're invited not just to watch the game, but we are brought into his father's presence, if you will, his domain, his kingdom, if you will, in which we are able to then not just sit there and watch from an owner's box, but we have before us the spread of his food. He's like, yeah, eat whatever you want. And 
So I did. I think it was Wagyu burgers or something like that. And so we were invited to eat everything that he ate, with all, the, all the, uh, the drinks, the snacks, and everything. And then we got into the game. And I have to admit, again, I'm OSU, but this was an exciting game. And my heart turned towards Baylor in these moments. Because in this, in this time, you know, and, and I did my best. I think I found something green somewhere to wear. And so in my moment, and so it was this exciting game. TCU was winning pretty much most of the game. And all of a sudden in the end, Baylor comes back to win it. And they are both really top programs. And in the midst of this, this win, I mean, everybody in the box begins going crazy. And I start going crazy as well. I mean, yes, yes, this is great. And I turn to the guy, this, 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 this guy's dad, whose box this was, and I give him a big hug. And I'm looking at this. At the end of this, it's like, this guy doesn't even know my name. He's probably looking, he's like, who are you? But he was over there grabbing me. He was excited. He was hugging me. And I was like, wow, this is, I don't know what this is, but this is something. And so I was thinking about this, and, and I've often thought about that game from the idea of the experience. It's like, hey, that was pretty cool. I mean, I, I'm a Sullivan. I don't go to these boxes. This is not what I do. This is not the way I roll, you know. But yet I was brought into this. But I also, as I was thinking about this, what a parable of grace that is. Because here I was, was invited as someone who was in essence a hostile enemy, brought into this, the presence of this remarkable man, able to eat of his food. Why? Because I knew his son. Because his son invited me as a work of grace and, and love within there. And I began thinking of that. I've, I've thought about that experience. And now, you know, it's good to remember those experiences, to be thankful of those experiences. But I got to think, how remarkably unmerited that experience was. What a work of just kindness. A Baylor guy would say it's certainly an act of mercy. But a work in which I was brought in and was actually able to embrace this person. Strangers become celibates, embraced, able to share this man's food because of the work, because of the relationship I had with his son. What a remarkable, as I was thinking and meditating on that, what a remarkable parallel that we see, imperfect, yes, to the gospel to the reality of what does it mean for us to be a community that is distinctively Christian. And what we see in our passage today is what does it look like? We see a similar parable. We see a similar, it's not a parable in the sense that it's, it happened, but it's one of those places where you see the gospel just playing itself out in so many different avenues. And when we begin to look at it, it's easy for us to read the story and 2 Samuel 9 and say, this, is, this sounds beautiful. This is almost like a Hallmark show, right? I mean, this is, this is gorgeous. You, you, your heart moves towards the kindness and the goodness of this narrative and this story. But I want us to make sure and take a look and see and acknowledge that what makes this so beautiful and what makes this so remarkable is the wonder of the gospel that is played out in this passage. So let's keep this in mind, uh, because as we remark, look at this, it doesn't just become a feel-good story, like a halt, something we watched on the Hallmark Channel that makes us feel good and helps us to be able to go to bed at night, 
But as we reflect on the grace that is there, it can actually, and I say should actually, change us into people that are loving, that reflect this love in our own lives. Take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, we keep in mind what has happened up until this point. We're in 2 Samuel. We read in 1 Samuel. And, of course, this was in 1 Samuel. We saw um, the rise of David to become king over Israel. And, of course, the first king that was chosen by the, uh, was, was Saul, who had rebelled against God, and he lost his kingdom. But yet, within that time, Jonathan became very close friends with the son's king, Jonathan. And though David never raised his hand against Saul, he never was a usurper against Saul. Not once, not ever. And in fact, showed Saul nothing but mercy and kindness. And so now, as we move forward, David has installed as king over all of Israel. But we saw that a significant portion of the line of Saul was actually killed and wiped out in the battle against the Philistines. Saul was killed, and Jonathan was killed. And of course, Isbosheth, the, 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 the son who kind of took over in the northern kingdom, was later assassinated. And so David is now firmly established as king, and he's looking out and says, is there anyone that I may show kindness? Now, that, that, that word kindness there, if we were to look back at it, is the Hebrew word chesed. The Hebrew word chesed, which is a, a deeply, if you remember from uh, some of our many other sermons, but especially our sermon on the covenants that we did back between Thanksgiving and Christmas, chesed is a very strong covenantal word. It means the faithful, uh, um, the covenant love of God, the faithful love of God it is a love without an expiration date. It is a love that is you really only fully see in God because he's the only one who can love that faithfully. But David here, he's been given this Davidic covenant, this incredible act of grace that we saw in 2 Samuel 7. And we saw that he, you know, he was trying to do something to, to, to love God. And God says, you know, look, what you're trying to do, that, that's cute, buddy. But let me look at, let's look at the love that I'm going to give you. You're not going to build a temple for me. You're not going to impress me. But I am going to build a house and a temple for you. And David's blown away from the chesed, the covenant love, the faithful love of God to him. And now as he's established king, he's saying, I want to show chesed love to a descendant of Saul for the sake of Jonathan. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called to him, uh, to David. And so Ziba was... Someone who is apparently, we, we're going to see later on, he, he was a man of actually quite some means. He had many kids, uh, many sons, many, many servants. And so there's the indication that he was a person of means. And we can see that he's somewhat of a shrewd operator. He's going to, he, both he and Mephibosheth are going to play themselves out later on in the narrative. But he has been able to uh, stay uh, in kind of a bit of a survivor uh, though David is now, and so it's a new regime, but yet though he was high up in Saul's kingdom, he is now still kind of somewhat high up, and probably he is kind of a caretaker, probably, of what was the estates of the Saul's family within there. 
And so this Ziba is called to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone from the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, that's the chesed, the kindness of God to him? Notice what he says there. He's not just wanting to show him regular kindness. He's not just wanting to show. He's saying, I want to show him the kindness, the chesed of God. David, who is one who has received the chesed of God, he's saying, I want to see this. This chesed of God, this kindness of God, this loving faithfulness of God, I want to see this played out in this kingdom. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mekar, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And then David sent, as David sent and brought him from the house of Mekar, the son of Amiel, to at Lodabar. Now, what we see here is this is, if we look back, this is really David also kind of going back to the promises, to the covenant promises he made with Jonathan. Jonathan, of course, showed him kindness, helped him escape as Saul was trying to kill him. And so as they were leaving and departing for the last time in 1 Samuel 20, we see that Jonathan was calling David because Jonathan knew that David was God's anointed. He knew that he was the one that God was going to make king. And so he tells him, he says, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love. That's the covenant love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now we saw that that's exactly what has happened. We saw that in the last week. Basically, all the enemies of David have been cut off. And so in many ways, David is responding just as Jonathan is asked. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, and he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so David made this covenant with Jonathan. Now, he certainly had many reasons why he didn't have to honor that, but yet David here, having experienced the covenant love of God, says, yes, that is what I want to be seen. Now, we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 4, which we already covered, there was the son of Jonathan by the name of Mephibosheth who had actually escaped as the Sauline line was being killed. And so this took place when, um, when Saul and David were both killed in the battle against the Philistines. On, um, and so what we see is Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came to Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And she fled in her haste, and, she, and he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. And so what we see is at this time when he fled, he was five years old. Now, what we're going to find out a little bit later is he's probably old enough to have a son at this point. So many, many years have taken place between now and then. And it says that he was staying in this house. Now, this house was actually kind of much closer to where the, the kingdom of the northern kingdom was when the kingdom was in civil war. And so it wasn't close to, to Jerusalem. It was far away, pretty close to where kind of the, the, the halls of power were when, uh, 
Ishbosheth was king and Abner was the general within there. And so he was in hiding, in essence. And so certainly at this point, you can imagine years and years of Mephibosheth really standing in a place of wondering, when are they going to find out about me? And being completely unable to do anything about it because of his disability. And so David calls him to bring him up. And you can imagine what must be going through his mind. Because this isn't a small journey. This was quite a, quite a bit out towards the outskirts of the kingdom. And he's being brought into Jerusalem. No doubt he's probably quite afraid. As certainly I would be. What's going to happen? Surely he's going to kill me. As I am a descendant of Saul and a and could potentially be both either him or someone from his line be a rival to his kingdom. Well, we pick up the narrative in verse uh, 9. And I have, uh, verse 5, excuse me. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and he fell on his face, which you can imagine was probably quite painful with his disability, certainly wasn't anything, and, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you the kindness, the chesed, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? You see, this is absolutely remarkable in many ways. Because keep in mind, in the ancient Near East context, when a new monarch or a new kingdom kind of came into power, one of the first things they did was they wiped out somebody from the old line to make sure that there was not going to be any rivals. They certainly didn't elevate them to a place of being right there at the, at the king's table. And you might say, well, it's just because he's, he was disabled. He was no threat. He had a son. That son would have been a threat. But yet, and this also keep in mind, this isn't Mephibosheth trying to make a play. He isn't trying to say, hey, let me go and kind of take advantage of the situation and, and try to make things right. He was completely in hiding, and David sought him out and brought him into his place to show him grace and mercy. Verse 9, And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. That's another kind of place, because this is, keep in mind, Saul was the king. And even before his king, we saw that Saul came from a family that was pretty well off. And so this had to have been pretty rich land. From a human standpoint, you would think the king would say, oh, nope, that's going to be my land. I'm going to take that. Maybe I'll give you some crumbs somewhere else. But no, he is restoring to him this incredible gift, very, very valuable property that is in there. And he says, he's saying this to Ziba. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson have, have bread to eat. So in other words, Mephibosheth isn't even going to be responsible for doing all this himself. He's placed somebody else to care for him. 
Mephibosheth is going to live a life of complete dependence. But yet, complete abundance. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Now as we hear that, it's such a remarkably heartwarming story. An incredibly warming story. But a lot of times for us, one of the things that we want to do very quickly is we want to place ourselves as David. We want to place ourselves in the story as David, as one who is to show mercy and grace. And we're going to get to that. That's certainly an application we're going to talk about. But before we can move into that place, we need to see ourselves first as Mephibosheth. We need to see ourselves, and remarkably, because what we see in that narrative is the story for all those who are in Christ. We see this remarkably played out in the New Testament for the Christians in the book of Ephesians, which is a story of all those who are in Christ. And we see in Ephesians chapter 2, he makes this declaration, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you were once walked. That is true of all of you, every person in this room. You may look at somebody who's, wow, they have been walking with Christ for years and years and years and years. I can't imagine this person ever being an enemy of God, being dead in the trespasses of their sin. But that is every person. Because of sin, we are born into hostility with God within there. And we're enemies of God. Right? And so we are following the course of this word, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And here's one of the greatest three letters you will ever see, but... Here is the remarkable narrative of who each and every one of us, hostile, forsaken, no reason at all to have hope, lame, disabled, completely unable to make ourselves right against a God who is holy and just and sovereign to whom we must stand account. But, B-U-T, but. This is who we are, but. God, but God, not but Bo, not but Joseph, not but you, not but insert whoever you may want to put in there, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In other words, not anything. Grace, mercy, this is all. By grace you have been saved 
and raised with us, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In other words, with G- in Jesus Christ. So that in the coming age, he might show us the immeasurable riches of the grace of his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. In other words, but we were enemies of God, hostile to him, and yet he has brought us what? Into his presence to eat of his table, like Mephibosheth, like me at that Baylor game. We're brought into the very presence of God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith, nothing else. Through faith. And this is not of your doing. Just as it, as it wasn't his place there at David's table, wasn't because of anything Mephibosheth did. It was there because of the grace and mercy of Jesus. You are welcome to this grace into this table, not because of anything you do, but because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. As a result, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we are, we are not saved by our works, but by being and experiencing his love and his transformation, he has called us to do good works. But notice which came first. It was the love. It was the salvation. It was the redemption. It was God working in us to then work it out in good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So in other words, even in that, it is what God has done beforehand. It is all about what God is doing in us. What that does, friend, what that highlights to us is a deeply important point. Before we move on to what does it mean for us to be a people who are a loving people, who are a loving community, a people who show this kind of love, the kind of love, this kind of covenant love to one another, to our spouses, to our neighbors, to another world, before we can give that love, you must first receive that love. Most of you, you may be here and you may be thinking, you know, there is someone here I want to love more. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a parent, you, maybe it's a coworker. You're saying, look, I wish I could love this person more. I wish I could be more patient with this person. What is one of the ways that we often look at that? We say, well, you know, I just need to think more about how, how good that person is. Maybe how worthy that person is of love. But let me submit to you, that's not going to get you very far for many reasons. But what in the best, when the first things is at best, what that will do is make you a conditional lover, because you're showing you're able to show them love on the condition that they show themselves worthy of love. In a world filled with broken people that are broken by sin, none of us are really fully worthy of love, just by what we do, and that's never going to be enough. And at best and at worst, what that means is everything we do to try to show love will ultimately be tainted because it is a selfish love. You're trying to do it to either make yourself feel better, to show yourself as a loving person, or to be able to have that person call you a loving person, to have you justified as a loving person. And we can do this even though we're Christians. Let me give you an example. A previous ministry where I was at, um, I was deeply, deeply loved by the people there. Deeply loved. And they expressed it in so many different ways. And I worked my tail off serving them. 
But you know what? I was so deeply insecure. It never felt like it was enough. It never felt like my sermons were good enough. It never felt like the things, the services I was doing for them was good enough. Why? Because I wasn't secure in love before I was giving love. I was looking to seek to find affirmation from their love, and it would never be enough. It would never be enough. But when we find our love, when we receive love perfectly, and the only way we can find a love that is that perfect is from the love from God that is shown to us in Jesus Christ. That frees us to truly love somebody, to truly show mercy to somebody. But it first begins with us being able to receive mercy by faith to look and to say, even though I don't deserve it, because what have I done to earn this? But to be secure enough to rest in a love that is faithful. And for many of us, we may have trauma. We may have hardships in our life that can make that difficult. You may have endured the, just the relentless criticism of a, of a spouse or a, a parent or a coworker or a boss that has cut deep into you. And so when you hear that God loves you, when you hear that God is a father, is you, it, you, everything in you wants to not believe that love. That's why it's a work of the Holy Spirit as it, as it continues. And it is a, is a work that we continue to move into to grow in our knowledge and our security and the love of God, which is ours by faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important for us to never put, move past our understanding of the gospel. But I'm also here to say, here to tell you, if you're here and maybe you came here because you're just saying, you look, I need something. I need to learn how to be a better person. I need to learn how to do, you know, be a better father, a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, whatever that may be, a better child. That's not going to happen from you learning what you should do, but it begins with you learning to receive a, the love of, the, of, of Jesus Christ that was dem demonstrated for you on the cross to trust in his grace by faith alone. And only then will he then be able to move forward into a gracious love, a gracious love. And you see, this is what happened with David. I don't think it's any accident that he's able to show this love after he's received the Davidic covenant love. Because that love made him secure. Because giving that kind of love is an act of faith. You have to believe. Because anytime you love somebody that way, you know what you're doing? You're making yourself vulnerable. You're making yourself vulnerable to being hurt. Or to be rejected. And you can only do that when you're secure in the love of Christ for you. David was able to show this kind of love because he was secure in the promises of God. That as God promised, I am going to give you rest from your enemies. As God promised, I'm going to establish your line forever. He was secure in the power of God and the promises of God 
the love of God for him, and that freed him to be able to show a love without being insecure, without being afraid of Mephibosheth. That freed him to truly show love within there. And we see that at display in Ephesians. Because how did that end in Ephesians chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 10? So that no one may boast, for we are, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Now, when we hear good works, a lot of times, because we associate good works with kind of our religious acts, we assume that good works are going to be doing things like giving money or reading our Bible or doing more religious type things. And those are all good things within there. But when we look at the book of Ephesians, it begins to play out what those good works are. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it continues to play out those good works. It is the works of reconciliation. God making peace between those who were once alienated from one another. And then it goes on in Ephesians chapter 4, as he begins to apply the gospel, you see what are the good works. So we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, so we walk in unity, that we walk in love. We see this work of submission and love that works itself out in the community in Ephesians chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 5, and it creates this beautiful work of love between husbands and wives and parents and workers and co-workers and employees. We see this in the book of Galatians, right? In the book of Galatians, Paul makes it extremely clear. The Galatians were wanting to try to find works to justify themselves in some of the religious activities they did, like in some of the fasts that they did or in the works of circumcision that they did. He says, no, you find your identity, your hope in the gospel of grace. And what is the fruit of that? It's the singular. It doesn't say the fruits, plural. The singular fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And it goes on to list those gloriously loving attributes. Jesus, as he approaches the cross in John chapter 13. He gives his final teaching to the disciples before the cross and he begins it with washing their feet. Him, the master, him, the sovereign God of all creation, doing, taking on this most demeaning act of service, showing them love. And he goes on, he talks, and he brings us into this conversation about abiding. He says, he calls them to abide in him. And in abiding in him, we are called to, to do good works of obedience. And he goes on to explain, what is these, these works of obedience? A new commandment I give you. Okay, oh, we're about to find out the, the works. What is the commandments? That you love one another. That you love one another. John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has this than no, no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends 
If you do what I command you, well, what's this commandment? That you love one another? No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The defining character of a spirit-filled community is love. Not, sa- not this very sappy love that is driven by emotions. Godly love that serves, that is willing to die for one another. That speaks truth. That calls us to depend on the Lord God. What made David special was this childlike dependence upon God. A security in God that enabled him then to see and to show, as he said, the chesed love of God within there. We need to understand this kind of love is not sentimental. It's not Hallmark Channel love. It is a love that is costly. It was costly for David to love this way. There's nothing easy about real love. And in fact, the love that we receive from Christ comes at the cost of the precious blood and life of Jesus. When I am, you want to take a picture of me and my wife being loving. What do we, our minds immediately go to? We think of times where Oh, we're sitting and we're having a nice romantic dinner. We're laughing together, talking about a mutual interest. Let me submit to you, that is not us at our most loving. Us in our most loving is when I've been a complete and utter jerk. My wife looks at me and forgives me, even though I don't deserve it, or vice versa. When we can look at each other and see, and we've just displayed our biggest faults, and we choose to serve one another, to move towards one another in love. That is a picture of when we are at our most loving towards one another. This is a love that is freely given, a love that is costly because I may show love or my wife may show love to me and I may be oblivious to it. But yet that is the love that is shown to me. That is a Christ-like love. It is a love that just doesn't even say as a call to love the easy people or the people that makes most sense for us to love like our spouses or our kids, but to love even those who curse us. To love our enemies. That is a spirit-filled community that is reflecting the love by which we have received. That is the love of God in us.
David showed this love. And we can only show this love when we have received that love in faith. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. But the good news is Christ demonstrated his love. He gave us a love that can anchor us, that secure us. The love that you are so hungering for in this world. And you may be trying to find it in another person. You may be trying to find it in an activity. You may be trying to find it in some sort of self-help in yourself. Let me tell you, the only love that is going to satisfy is the love that you can know in Jesus Christ. From the one, one true God who sent his only begotten son to take upon the cross our wrath for sin, to conquer death, hell, and the grave, to rise again from the dead, to offer us new life in his name. How can we become, how can we receive this love of God? By believing that Jesus Christ was God's appointed son, the eternally begotten son who died on the cross for our sin, believing that when he paid for our sin, there was nothing else for us to do. To receive his forgiveness by faith, believing that he rose again from the dead. We can can come as simple as looking to God saying, I know I need a savior. I need someone to save me. I believe Jesus is that savior, that he died on the cross, that he rose again from the dead. I believe that I can be forgiven from my sins and made new, making him my savior by faith. Forgive me, God. Enable me to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. Won't you do that today? Father, we thank you for your goodness. We're blown away by the remarkable love that we have seen, that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. There is none of us here that fully grasped that love. None of us has fully grasped even the depth of our sin. That you and your grace and your mercy move towards us in your love. Give us faith to believe that love today, to trust in you, and to allow that love to change us. In Jesus' name. Please stand and sing with us.